Well, hello there. It's the Ides of November, the 15th of November, 2021. Wow, hasn't this year just flown? We've got a very special program for you tonight. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Shaps, David Shapiro, is in the game reserve, so he's unable to give us his pearls of wisdom as per usual on a Monday. But we more than make up for that by having an interview, an extended one, with the great disruptor of the South African financial services industry. And this is an exponential company whose share price has gone up by the second most, well, it's up by 600% in two years, the second most of any share listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. They brought their financial results out on Friday. And today I sat down with Charles Savage to find out exactly what is going on with a company called Easy Equities. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a study in disruption, and it is also some insight into how you get a share price to go from 34 cents to 2.45 in two years. Uh, there is, incidentally, one other stock that's done even better than uh, Purple Capital, but uh, that'll come up in the course of the interview. That's a extended discussion, which you'll hear from about halfway into the program. Ahead of that, though, by now you would have heard of Damon Galgut's victory as the author of the Booker Prize winning entry for this year. It's a massive international prize, the best book of the year in the world. And it's a South African and our Linda van Tilburg had a discussion with him. We will also uh, hear from our partners at the Financial Times of London on the latest in the news headlines internationally. But before we get there, we'll find out about the news headlines here in South Africa. Starting off, as per usual, finding out how the business community is absorbing uh, the information that we're providing them. Jared Neves, you've got the latest. Thanks, Alec. Uh, here are the most accessed stories on the business platforms. On the website, biznews.com, a piece by Anthea Jeffrey titled Patience and Resilience Will End ANC Misrule is currently the best-read article, followed closely by FW Declared Crosses Over, leaving a contested legacy, and brace yourself, harsher load shedding coming in 2022. On BizNews TV on YouTube, a glimmer of hope for SA, Alec Hogg's post-budget insight. Inflationary pressures are ominous for growth stocks, that's an interview with Pete Fillion, and the most recent flash briefing are among the best watch videos. And last but not least, on BizNews Radio on Spotify, Charles Savage on Easy Equity's roaring success, Dirk van Vlaanderen of Cajiso Asset Management shares his thoughts on RECM Caliber and the most, pow- most recent Power Hour are the most listened to podcasts. Thank you, Jared. That podcast that you were talking about, Justin, was the discussion you had with Charles about his results, which uh, were pretty special, weren't they? Very good results, Alec. They've got such a large runway. It's one of the few South African companies with a nice growth trajectory. Charles has really got them firing on all cylinders, lots of nice partnerships with massive South African financial services businesses such as Discovery and Capitec and looking forward for things to come with Charles Savage and his team. Yeah, those were extremely good financial results that came out on Friday. And as I say, we went more in depth uh, today in studio. Well, let's find out now what's been going on in the markets. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, 
the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. That's your cue, Nadia Swat. Yeah, today's news headlines. Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Minister Nkosazana Lumini Zuma has extended South Africa's national state of disaster by a further month. The state of disaster is now set to expire on the 15th of December 2021. This would make it the 21st month under the state of disaster since it was declared at the end of March 2020 and the 18th extension of the regulations after their first end date of June 2020. The government has relied on the regulations to introduce and give effect to lockdown restrictions which it has used to curb the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, it has also faced criticism for giving national government wide-ranging powers over the lives of citizens with few limits and little to no oversight from Parliament. The latest extension comes despite the significant decline in new cases, with only 262 reported in South Africa on Sunday. The government will rely on the ongoing state of disaster to reintroduce lockdown restrictions at short notice. Leaders from South Africa's smaller political parties are meeting today to discuss coalitions. However, the ANC and EFF have been sidelined from the talks and won't be approached. Action SA, the DA and many smaller parties like the Freedom Front Plus, ACDP, UDM and Gaten McKenzie's Patriotic Alliance are all meeting, hoping to decide the future of the many hung councils in the country following the elections, including major metros. Councils will start meeting this week to form local governments. They have 14 days from the declaration of election results to hold their first council sittings, with the deadline set for this week Thursday. And some Gauteng residents will be hit with a 54-hour shutdown of water starting Monday. The city's of Johannesburg, Randburg, Soweto, Randwest, Mohale City, Merafong, Rustenburg, Madibeng, and Mfuleni will be affected. The bulk supplier will be installing a new pipe that will increase the amount of water drawn from the Vaal River into a treatment plant to increase supply to local municipalities. The work is expected to be finalized by Wednesday. And now it's back to Justin for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 69,800. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 16 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 37 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 35 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,865 an ounce. Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading lower at $81.60 a barrel, and Bitcoin is hovering around the million rand per coin mark. In the financial news, European brewer Heineken will buy South Africa's largest alcohol producer, Distel, make of Savannah and Hunter's Dry, for 180 rand per share, the company announced on Monday. This values Distel, a Stellenbosch-based wine and spirits company, at 40 billion rand. The merger, first proposed in May, will join the world's largest cider manufacturer, Heineken, with Distel, the second largest. This is the second buyout of a South African alcohol company of the world's largest brewer, AB Imbev, bought SAB Miller in 2016 for $122 billion. The merger, which still requires competition authority approval in multiple jurisdictions, will open doors in Africa for Heineken. Distel has had recent success on the continent, especially in Kenya, where Hunter's Cider is growing in popularity as more women drink alcohol. The producer has been growing revenue in Mozambique and Nigeria too. Interesting stuff there from both of you. Uh, Nadia, the political parties, it's coming down to the wire, isn't it? But interesting the point you make. The smaller parties are now in discussions. Well, the smaller parties and the official opposition, the DA, uh, and the ANC and the EFF being frozen out. Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, it's great news considering that it's 
probably the only like possibility if we want to see quick change because the small parties together it's about five percent or something those really really tiny ones that without you know sort of teaming up then they can't really affect change so we'll see what happens but it's exciting well certainly about 70 of those municipalities that are in play including johannesburg Trani, ikuruleni uh, some even tech any. In fact, they're all pretty much in play, aren't they? Uh, Justin, from your side, the, the the Bitcoin price, my goodness. So it's still hovering around the million rand mark. And I see there's a, a, a court action going on in the United States, which may unveil the man who created Bitcoin in the first place, which is, uh, I, I guess, going to be eagerly watched. Yes, very highly anticipated. I have heard of him multiple times. Whether he created Bitcoin or not is a completely different story. I guess we'll find that out with time. But as time goes, Alec, we're just seeing this asset class become more and more mainstream. More and more people are talking about it. And therefore, there's going to be pressure on regulators to to allow Bitcoin to be a traditional asset class with time. And um, this hype continues. It's going to become more and more regulated and another option for investors. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, November 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. China has lashed out at the European Union, COP26 has wrapped up, and the Brexit drama continues. Unfortunately, the deal that Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, signed, he now says, isn't a very good one. So he'd like to have it reopened. Our EU correspondent, Andy Bounds, unpacks the key sticking point. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. China is unhappy with the European Union at the moment. In an interview with the FT, Beijing's ambassador to the bloc, Zhang Ning, said the EU has thrown up regulatory and trade hurdles to foreign businesses that could damage global supply chains. The EU has been changing its trade practices to bolster its economic self-reliance and to respond to China's trade practices. The Chinese ambassador also criticized a deal between the EU and the U.S. to limit steel and aluminum imports from carbon-intensive producers like China. He said the deal would worsen inflationary pressures. Meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping is set to meet U.S. President Joe Biden today for a virtual summit aimed at salvaging the relationship between the two countries. After two weeks of street protests and speeches from powerful leaders, the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow has wrapped up. The big achievement is an agreement among nearly 200 countries on new rules for cutting greenhouse gas emissions or paying to cut emissions. But this final deal didn't come without some last-minute drama. The FT's climate editor, Amelia Mahasik, joins me now to talk more about this. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Mark. So what was this last-minute drama? Yeah, so um, we had various sort of issues that people were arguing about. But the one sort of most obvious thing that it seems bizarre was never included in any COP agreement was the phasing out of coal or the end of use of coal for power and the end of subsidies for fossil fuel projects. You know, it seemed like things were going pretty well. And then literally in the last few hours of a two-week summit, you had India first saying 
that it would not support this first-time inclusion of the end of coal in the agreement. And it also had support from China and South Africa. Okay, so last-minute scramble. Um, What was India's reasoning for balking over the phrasing regarding end of coal? Well, as developing nations where, you know, quite honestly, as they pointed out, that a lot of their people don't have power and to hamstring the country uh, in, in developing is unfair when other rich countries, wealthy countries like the US and, and Europe have already had the benefit of uh, having coal-fired power to, as part of their prosperity. So that's the reason that they, they wanted to include wording that was about a phase down of coal, not a phase out. Now, it seems like a small thing, but for nations, vulnerable nations, small island nations that are already suffering from climate change, they were very unhappy about that. So, Amelia, let's talk about the how. How do countries go about implementing these new rules, especially, you know, the world's biggest carbon emitters? Well, that's the critical question, Mark, is is it doable? Um, the agreement proposes that countries come back in a year's time with what their targets are, how far they've come. One of the technical aspects of the agreement is that they set in place a way of measuring, asking countries to be more transparent about how they measure their emissions and what their emissions are. Countries such as Russia are less keen on that. So they'll all have to come back in a year's time and check in. So Amelia, COP has been going on for over a quarter of a century. Where does this COP lie in terms of importance and historical context? So this is my first COP, as it was for many of the businessmen and politicians who were there, I might add. COP veterans tell me that this was a positive COP. And whether it will be seen as a turning point in sort of five or 10 years time, it's hard to tell. But the last five to six years, really since Paris, there has been very little breakthrough. And the last COP in Madrid was judged a failure as a result. And so hence, there was a little bit more excitement about this one. We will only be able to really judge if it succeeds in limiting climate change. And even now, based on the pledges that were made at this COP, we're still on track at the best possible scenario for 1.8 degrees of warming, which is above the 1.5 target for Paris and generally not great. But I'm a believer in humanity's ability to change and to make for improvement personally. So I think I would like to think that without further major catastrophe to force governments and society to change, that this will heighten recognition of the need to do that. Amelia Mahasik is the FT's climate editor. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks, Mark. It's been nearly a year since the UK and the EU reached a dramatic last-minute deal on how the two sides will trade after Brexit. But neither side was ever really happy. And now relations are really sour over post-Brexit trade arrangements for Northern Ireland. To talk more about this, I'm joined by the FT's EU correspondent, Andy Bounds. Hi, Andy. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Andy, why are we still talking about Brexit? Well, that's a good question. The big problem with Brexit is that the UK wanted to diverge from the European Union. It didn't want to stay in the single market. It didn't want to stay in the customs union. It wanted to be able to set its own rules and make its own trade deals outside the bloc. That's all fine. The problem is that in Ireland, there is Northern Ireland, part of the UK, 
and the Republic of Ireland, an independent country, which is in the EU. Nobody wants to put a border between those two places. So therefore, they had to find a solution that meant that goods could flow within the UK, but not get into the single market in Ireland. Uh, without putting customs controls on the actual island. So what happened was Boris Johnson agreed this protocol, which effectively puts a trade border in the Irish Sea. Therefore, goods that are going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland have to be checked. And that's something that a lot of people in Northern Ireland resent, as you can imagine. You know, For example, at one stage, it looked like they wouldn't be able to get their sausages from the rest of Great Britain anymore. Goods such as cheeses and parcels that you want to send, you cannot take your dog without hefty checks and, and paying a fee. Boris Johnson says unworkable. He's gone back to the EU. The EU has come up with some fixes and the UK says they don't go far enough. Now we should mention that the UK's pushback is not entirely surprising. The UK was planning legislation as far back as September of last year to override key parts of the Brexit deal. Now a year later, they're still fighting over Northern Ireland, and they're kicking around something called Article 16. Andy, what is Article 16? So Article 16 is an article in the protocol. It's part of the deal. And what it says is we can suspend some of the checks if we feel they're having a bad impact on society or if trade is being diverted. So if, for example, it's becoming so hard to get stuff from GB to Northern Ireland that all the shops in Northern Ireland start looking to get stuff from Ireland instead. I mean. Northern Ireland is effectively part of the EU's single market for goods. So therefore, it's easier for them to get stuff from Ireland itself or even from France than it is to get stuff from GB at the moment. Now, again, this, this was a compromise to, to keep the peace in, in Ireland. And a lot of these things were foreseen. And the EU, EU says to the UK, well, you knew this might happen. You know, you knew what you were doing when you're doing it. Boris Johnson claims, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to trigger Article 16, which will allow me to suspend certain parts of these checks. And then it puts the ball in the EU's court as to what they might do in response. Andy, what does this do to the relationship between the EU and the UK? Is it tarnished beyond repair? I think it's really, really tarnished it in the last few months. Uh, I mean, it wasn't great to start with, but there was hope, certainly in Brussels, that there could be cooperation in areas like defence, Science, I mean, the UK is supposed to still be part of the EU's science program, which is called Horizon. It's offered to pay into that to be able to participate in it. But the commission is basically blocking that because it says, why would we want to admit you to a club when you've already shown bad faith with the deals that you sign? We, we, you know, we, they just don't trust the UK's word on anything. And so we've seen, you know, certain uh, movement in the US, which obviously has a great affinity with Ireland. And the president of the commission was over there talking to Joe Biden and people on in Congress. And they, you know, they're not happy with the UK's position either. Andy Bounds is the FT's EU correspondent. Thank you, Andy. No problem. Before we go, broadcasters in the U.S. are competing fiercely for the rights to English Premier League games. Soccer is becoming more popular in the U.S. media landscape. But also right now, more and more Americans are canceling their cable accounts and turning to streaming. And in many cases, sports is basically the one thing that keeps people watching cable, so sports rights are really valuable. Sources told the FT the Premier League rights could end up going for a record $2 billion. That's double what Comcast's NBC paid for Premier League rights back in 2015. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I'm Lena Pantalba for Bez News. A South African writer, Damon Galgood, has won the 2021 Booker Prize with his book about a Pretoria family, The Promise. With this one, he follows in the footsteps of well-known South African authors, Nadine Gordimer and James Kutsier. The Booker Prize is for many the most prestigious book award of the year, and the books chosen by judges have become legends of literature. Other winners include Salman Rushdie, Hilary Montel, Margaret Atwood, George Saunders and Ian McEwan. Joining me from London when the prize was handed out is Damon. Congratulations. Wow, what a win. I don't know what to say except thank you very much. Well, how does it feel? A little bit unreal still, actually, but good. Uh, I've been in shock for a few days and uh, working very hard talking about the book. So I'm somewhat exhausted and, uh, you know, still a bit stunned, but in every other way in a good state. Thank you. This morning, I saw my feed from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And I mean, everyone has your story on it. I mean, you've really, really made headlines worldwide with this novel. Can you tell us a little bit for South Africans who have not read it, what is it about? Well, essentially, it's the story of a family, the Swartz, who live uh, just outside Pretoria, where I also grew up. And it tells the story of, uh, I guess, the decline of the family through the device of using four family funerals. So you only really um, get to see them for a day or two around each funeral as mother, father, sister and brother die. But I hope, you know, that little window open onto the funeral tells a larger story too, both about the country behind the family, but yeah, also about some of the issues that have shifted and changed in South Africa over the last 30 or 40 years. And why was it set in Pretoria? I could have, of course, set it almost anywhere, but Pretoria happens to be the most uh, deeply embedded South African city in my bones and uh, in my cells. Where you grow up tends to be the place that kind of uh, weighs on you the most and that is most present for you. So just happens to be Pretoria in my case, although I, I've always thought Pretoria deserved uh, to be the setting for some kind of novel. It's um, it's not really like any other place uh, in South Africa or anywhere else, as far as I know. Well, you basically plotted the transition of South Africa in that book. The Pretoria that you grew up in and the one you said you recently went back for a reunion at Boys High School. How does Pretoria weave itself into the story of the transition of South Africa? Well, it's a setting, really. But of course, like every other South African city, Pretoria has changed. I mean, in some ways, to Pretoria's great 
credit, it might have changed more than any other South African city. I mean, it used to be a very, very white, conservative, unpleasant place. Those are my memories of it from, you know, my teenage years. Now it's a full-on African city. It's the most African city in South Africa, really, which is fantastic. And it's a, you know, an indication of how far Pretoria has actually come. Yeah. I could go on about Pretoria at great length, but uh, that's, a, you know, hopefully a pointed answer to your question. Do you think there's pressure on South African writers to have some political element in the stories that they write? Yeah, I mean, pressure is maybe not the right word. It, it may be a more an internal pressure. Uh, it's very hard to write a story in South Africa that's neutral in the sense of being, you know, free of history. Our recent past is so um, loaded and tumultuous, to state the obvious, that we're all shaped by it. So what would the story be that's free of that history? Um, there's something artificial in creating a story where, you know, your your background, your race, your class don't matter. They matter very greatly in South Africa. And, you know, if you're really going to be cognizant of what goes into making a character, if you're writing a story, you have to take account of those things. Yeah. So, so can we look at your writer's process? I believe you write in longhand first. I do. I'm very old fashioned, you know, and I also just have this love of stationery. I've, I've always loved pens and ink and paper. Um, I know they're, you know, very out of fashion now with a new generation, but I still have a almost a childlike excitement over those things. So I, you know, I use a particular Parker pen, which was given to me as a gift long ago when I was about 20. And I like these big hand-stitched ledgers that I buy in India. Every time I visited, I sort of come back with a pile of them. I like the connection between my brain and the word that's being set down on the page. The computer sort of cuts that connection. I also like the fact that it's a slower process than typing on the computer. I, um, I get a few more seconds to think about what I'm saying. And that that matters. So what's the process? Do you write cross out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a mess. I'm probably the only person who understands what's going on in the manuscript. There are arrows and things shifted around and crossings out, all of which is quite nice to return to later, incidentally. Um, you know, the computer tends to erase the the path of work that you've traveled, um, whereas if it's on the page, you can go back to it. And it's it's useful if you're stuck if you're stuck in a new story and you go back to an old manuscript, you can see that you tend to struggle with exactly the same things over and over. It's very easy to forget that, um, you know, if you have the, the sort of clean page that the computer presents you with. So do you find that you make notes as you sit in a coffee shop in Cape Town or Pretoria or wherever you are? I don't really make notes. Everything that's important sort of stays in my mind. I mistrust making notes because... Firstly, it's an inadequate record. But secondly, if you don't remember it, you're probably not going to be able to draw on it in the right way anyway. The stuff that's really important stays in your brain, I think. You don't really have to kind of note it down. That's my experience. Can we go a bit further back in your background? What prompted you to become a writer? Well, you know, it's a sort of impossible question to answer, really, because um, everybody's story is different. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of writers who have no particular events in their background that would lead them to want to do this strange thing. Um, In my case, I do trace it back to being ill as a child for a number of years. And uh, that was sort of the period when I was first learning to read. And 
books were a great escape for me. They take you out of where you are. They take you to somewhere else. They provide a kind of a comfort. So, you know, it's logical to me that those associations led to me wanting to make stories of my own. But, you know, that may be a fake explanation. Maybe, maybe I would have wanted to do this in any case. It's very hard to know wisdom after the fact. It's easy to forget at this point that actually books were probably the only outlet we had. There were no, you know, tablets or devices to keep you distracted. If, if I was sick now, maybe my distractions would have come in a different form. But back then, books were it. They were the, the entertainment and the mental stimulation. There, there weren't many other options. Um, you know, we didn't even have television in South Africa at that point. So, you know, books were absolutely central to our cultural life. And um, it was thrilling to me to learn to read and to, uh, to learn what stories could do. And I haven't lost that thrill. Um, I know for new generation, maybe it seems like an odd indulgence, but for me, it was everything. To come back to the Booker Prize, this is third time lucky. Yeah, apparently so. I, I had a couple of short listings before this one, and I really imagined that was as far as this one would go to. I was taken by surprise when I happened to win. When you accepted the Booker Prize, you dedicated the prize to, to other African writers. Do you think African writers now have their rightful place in the world? Well, let's see what this, uh, you know, not only my win, the Nobel Prize, the Prix Goncourt, the International Booker this year have all gone to African writers, which is, you know, a stellar sweep for our continent. Very unusual. It's, it's hard to know if that signifies, you know, a shift in attention on the part of the West towards Africa. I mean, one would hope so whether that's going to be a long-lasting change or not. But yeah, I, I certainly think we should be using the momentum that this current attention brings to try and um, excite more readers. And not only in the West, our own our own readers in Africa should be paying attention to our storytellers and our books. We, we have a lot of stories to tell, and um, it's about time that they uh, took center stage, I think. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Charles Savage, it's good to have you in studio. Cheapers, it feels like uh, COVID has kept us apart. Yeah, it's lucky to be here. It's uh, <laughs> that time of year. We can wrap things up. I did some data this morning, going mm. back for the last two years on share prices in the JSC. The highest is not you. It's a company called Brickcore. Went up 700%. But Easy Equities' parent company, Purple, has gone from 34 cents to 2 rand 45 in the last two years as of today. That's 621% of all the stocks on the JSE. That's astonishing. Yeah, jeez, Alec. I haven't looked at it, so it's a new data point for me. And it's not something that I focused on, but I got goosebumps while you were talking about it. Um, yeah, it feels good, I must say. And you know, this is not, you know, Easy Equities has been around seven years, but Easy Equities has been 21 years in the making. So, yeah, it's reflecting in the last two years' share price, but we've been hard at it for a long time. Why don't you just move the microphone down a little bit? Just move the sure. mic down uh, so we can see your face on cool. the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it is a story that we picked up on at Biz News a little late uh, because of your participation at the Biz News Investment Conference. At the time, the share price was around 80 cents. I know mm -hmm. there was uh, one of our 
one of our participants who went out and bought 50,000 rands worth of, of stock on the strength of what you had to say. Yeah. But it's nothing new, really. This has been a consistent message. It has. And I think, you know, I think those that have stuck by it for so long, they're not surprised. I mean, the doubters were always there. And, and I, you sort of get it. If you're outside of financial markets and you're outside of our strategy, to have a bold ambition to democratize stock uh, investing and to be bigger than the biggest stockbroker in the country in a very short period of time, and Standard Bank was the biggest back then, you know, a lot of people will bet against you. Um, you know, we, in order for us to make decent amounts of money, we needed over half a million customers. Standard Bank is purportedly has around 70,000 customers. The entire market only has 250,000 customers. So you had to believe that we were going to be two times bigger than the entire market in terms of customers. And, you know, if somebody said that to me and I wasn't the guy doing it, you know, I'd probably believe him a little. So I get it. You know, people haven't necessarily bought into it. But I think the key is, when they hear our story and we unpack it for them like we did at the business conference, um, they buy in. They see our passion, our purpose. They buy into what we're doing. Um, and when you get close to the company, you get comfortable with the things that we're doing. And you also you fall in love with it. It's, you know, there's lots of good stuff going on there. So um, there are more believers every day. I mean, the, the number that stood out for me in my results, and forget about the financial numbers, Almost 50,000 retail shareholders own 60% of the group. For, rewind seven years ago, 1,800 shareholders owned less than about 6% of the group. So this has been radical democratization, not only of access to investing, but also access the democratization of the purple group. I mean, we're now owned by literally thousands and thousands of retail investors. And that's the that's really the magic. I mean, that's the promise we made is that we would create a platform that enabled wealth, but also gave you access to fall in love or own shares in the companies that you loved. So double-edged sword though. Yeah. If the share price at the moment, happy days. Yeah. You're the second best performing stock on the JSC. Anyone who bought Purple Capital in the last two years has made a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, what happens though if you, you fall out of favor? And we will. You know what I mean? Like we're a high growth uh, company. We're on the kind of cutting edge of financial services, constantly innovating and pushing the boundaries. And is it always going to work? No. But what we've got, a, we've got a track record of fixing the things that don't work um, and resolving them. And so, you know, when you've got loyal shareholders who love you, they stay much longer than shareholders that are there for a profit or there for a return. You know, I think if you if you ask that 50,000 shareholders, why do they own us? I mean, the one reason is definitely going to be, oh, we, want to, we see this business growing and we see a return. But in many respects, and I had a conference last week, it, they are patiently holding for decades. And so, you know, if we slip up and we make some mistakes in the next year or two, that's not the end game. The end game is 10, 20, 30 years out. And I, you know, I, I said this as well recently. What do we want to do? What's the big kind of goal? And it's 100 years from now when people are looking at South Africa and saying, what radically changed the financial fabric of the country? What was the catalyst to create this, all this wealth that we see around us? And I want them to say it was easy equities. And I'll never be here for that result. But that's the goal. It's that far out. It's that, it's that ambitious. And I, I think our shareholders 100% buy into that. At one of the recent conferences, Holger Meyer, who's one of our community members, said that he, he referred me to Sean Thompson. Mm. the uh, surfer who uh, I did interview a little while ago. Mm. And he said, Sean was asked, he'd started two businesses, which are very famous in surfwear. He was asked, what business would you start now if you were to begin again? He said, I wouldn't start a business. I'd start a tribe. Mm. 
Mm. Sounds to me like you've started a tribe. Yeah, I think that's a great way of describing it is there's a, there's a tribal following to what we're doing. People want to wear the purple group on their, on their heart. And so they're part of that tribe and they're making a difference. And you can see it's so open transparently on, on social media. I mean, our community of, you know, 500,000 investors, there are at least, there are thousands of them leading the way on social media hosting education, doing research. This weekend, I saw there was a group of them that got together, which was kind of old world analysts combined with our Easy Equities tribe, and they were doing financial education and literacy for four or five hours. So it is, it, there is kind of a cult following. I hate the word, but it is, it's tribal in, uh, in, that, in that sense. How many came along to it? Oh, there were thousands online. And, and it had, you know, the, what I loved about it is we were no part of it. You know, we've created a community that are standing. We've stood on their shoulders and created our business. And now they're standing on our shoulders and creating products and services that are resonate with them. They see friction points in their community. So education being the biggest one. And they're not sitting there going, well, we're going to wait for easy equities to solve this problem. They're going, we're going to solve this. If we want our communities to take up investing and they don't understand what they're doing, why don't we lead that charge? Why don't we be the change? Um, and it does. It does feel tribal. It's uh, Maybe we all need to get some tattoos. And- <laughs> <laughs> if you were in America, first of all, there would be more competition mm. and your competitors wouldn't have looked at you and said, well, the market's only 70,000, et cetera. But secondly, somebody would have looked at you and said, here's a couple of billion dollars. Yeah. Go for it. You You haven't had that. And I'm sure you're going to tell me that it has its advantages, but the, the big number that jumped out at me out of your results was cost of acquisition, 50 rand a person. That is an extraordinarily yeah. low number. And you said 2.5% of what the financial services uh, community in South Africa pays to yeah. acquire a customer. It is How? the magic. It is the magic in our profitability. Um, and it, I, I've looked closely at a lot of fintechs globally, and it's the number they get wrong. So they acquire customers like two and a half thousand rand and even higher in places like Europe and UK. And then they never get the income, right? And then they shut down. Um, so are the benefit of, of being really lean startup? I mean, we've built this out of an income statement of a group that was worth when we started 200 million rand. Okay. The average startup in the US raises $40 million. Um, so we've done it out of, out of average, average $40 million. And the big ones, the ones you've got ambitions like yours, yeah. it would be billions. billions sure. Yeah. I mean, Robinhood has now raised over $2 billion. So, you know, for big, context, big money yeah. yeah, for context. So it's been good for us in that sense. It's built a very a high degree of discipline in where we spend our money and how we spend it. And it's created efficiencies on our income statement. And you've highlighted the biggest one, but what now? is the question. Do we accelerate our growth plans? Do we lock out the competitive opportunity and and start to spend more money on growth? And I think if you read the financials, you would have found the hints at that. You know, I think it is time for us to take our income statement and invest it more heavily in locking out the competitive opportunity. Because unlike 30 years ago, if you'd built a business like this 30 years ago, you'd have a very, you'd have a very wide competitive moat Today, businesses are created that are our size in months and years in the same way that we've done it, and we mustn't get complacent. So I think we've got to, in this instance, we've got to go and raise capital now. We're going to be very responsible. We're not going to raise billions, but we've got to go out and raise money, build the team capability, and at the same time, invest heavily in growth because our opportunity is far greater than the 700,000 customers we've got. Has Paul Rutherford played much role in this thinking? And I I mentioned that because he is – a guy who comes from Naspers, they know how about mm. taking big bets. 
Yeah, he certainly has. Uh, he's been a big influence. Um, it's internally, the team have always wanted to do it. You know, the conflict has been that the shareholders, and you know this well, have been there for a long time. So there was kind of prove your prove your income statement. And once you've proven it, that'll deliver to the shareholders. And then there might be shareholders who want to stay for the growth opportunity, but there could be a lot of shareholders that want to exit. And you've seen big shareholders exiting big portions of their shares. And what that's provided is the ability for people like Paul to come in and say, hey, we see this thing as a growth uh, um, opportunity, and we're going to acceler- accelerate and facilitate the acceleration of that growth. Um, Have you proved the template? I guess that's really what we're talking about here. You started off with stockbroking with easy equities. Now you've got property, you've got crypto, and I want to uh, delve into that in more detail yeah. in a moment. But the geographic expansion um, was mentioned in your in yeah. your uh, commentary to your results as well, in your annual report. And by the way, very well done in getting your annual report out the same time as your numbers. Yeah, uh, that's 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 not uh, not often that we see that. No. Um, so I see what, what, what have we proven? I mean, we've proven that we can scale products along the easy equities platform rails very quickly. So easy properties, easy crypto, what great stories, um, that are fast, that are both growing much faster than easy equities ever did. But sure, they've had, you know, unfettered access to a wonderful community, which we had to build. Can we do more of that for sure? You know, we, the template for rolling out more products and services is essentially ask your customers what they want and then make sure you deliver it in the way that they want it. And that's what we did with Easy Properties and with crypto. So we're going to do much more of that. Last year, my biggest disappointment was that we didn't roll out a new product. You know, in COVID, we locked, we, locked, we did Australia, crypto, and Easy Properties last Don't year. Don't you need to consolidate sometimes? I mean, yeah, look, I think the team wanted that speed. consolidation. Personally, I love new i love the challenges that 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 brings uh, and i i think if we'd got ourselves into that k- kind of metronome of rolling out a new product every year uh, it was a good discipline to be in having said that it was good for the team to sort of relax not relax back full on all of the growth that we've uh, we've had but the year ahead you're going to see at least three to four new products rolled out along our rails similar like property crypto yeah you know? so the the ones that i can i sort of I'm pretty sure that we'll deliver on. So easy ventures. So think easy properties, but now in the venture capital space, one that I'm so excited about. I mean, I've tried to raise money in this country several times and it's just, it's not, it doesn't suit the entrepreneurs. What I love about what we'll do, which is different from what the venture capitalists are doing is we could, there's a flywheel effect and that if we raise money from our community, they become shareholders in the products and services that they love. And that creates more shareholders and more growth, and that returns back to the uh, customers. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's happened with Purple. So it's just taking our own case study and saying, imagine if we did this for startups. Um, so I, I'm really excited about that. Easy FX, which the business has been there, but it hasn't been a we, – we rely on the rails of banks. We're getting our own license, and we're going to start to move money more freely across the platform. Is there a cost advantage? Big cost advantage for us to do it. And the big advantage actually is speed. So being able to move that money very quickly, we're adding GBP uh, and Euro, uh, and UK, Euro and uh, and sterling markets, UK markets. So that'll give our customers more destinations to trade, uh, to invest in. And then finally, we will definitely also launch uh, Easy Insure. So life insurance built for investors, where because we think the industry, uh, we think there's a disruptive opportunity to align a life insurance product with what you're doing on our platform. The more you invest, the better you invest, the lower your premiums, the less you need to insure your life for. So those are three that you can sort of write down that we'll definitely launch. And then we've got a you know, host of others that we'd like to see launch, but it'll depend on how easy, how quickly we roll those three out. 
you did introduce some new partnerships. Mm. Discovery Bank was interesting because on the one hand, you've got Capitech, but Discovery Bank, it's almost been under the radar. I haven't certainly hadn't picked it up until reading your financial statements. Yeah, they announced it at their big uh, reveal day in, I think it was in September, uh, and it got quite a bit, bit of media. But, you know, Discovery won't talk about it too much until it's out and it's live. So it'll be launched first quarter of next year. It's a wonderful partnership uh, in the sense that the, it's two highly innovative businesses that are coming together to create something that is more innovative than the sum of the parts, if you know what I mean. So we do, for example, we fit inside their money program, the Vitality Money Program, which means that if you are a Discovery Bank customer and your assets are on easy equities, you're going to be valued more as a Discovery Bank customer. So I, I love what we, we're doing with them. That part, and as, as I said, that'll go live first quarter. We've done Telecom. Capitec feel? Capitec, you know, if Capitec wanted exclusivity, they would have demanded it up front. You know, if you buy into democratization, you can't own it. Uh, and I think that's the key thing about all of our partners. They buy into the democratization of financial services and they know that it's good for them. If you're a bank managing wealthy customers' accounts, it's much better than, than the alternative. And so... You know, there's no jealousy. There's no guardrails to stop us from partnering. The key for us is to partner like-minded institutions that believe in the same things we believe in. We've made mistakes in the past where you follow a partnership because you think they want to do the same things you do. Uh, and in Capitech, we found a partner who deeply be and sincerely believes in what we do. Uh, and we are super respectful of that. And, you know, they've done very well and they, con and, and they will continue to do better and better as we live alongside them. Also, Discovery targets us very different demographic to Capitech. You know, Discovery, for us, it's the kind of attack on RMB Investec rather than the attack on FNB, Standard Bank, Nedbank, which is Capitech's kind of play. So it puts us at the high end of the market and at the middle to lower You're also end. a disintermediator. You are really promoting education. Mm. You're saying to people, take control of all your own affairs, whereas Discovery is very much an intermediated model with working through brokers and its own sales force. Mm. I wonder how that's going to play. I think the truth is that the balance is where we'll land. You know, people are going to do more things for themselves, but not necessarily all of the things. So if I take myself as an example, there's no, I've got no excuse not to manage all my money, but I have limited time and capacity to worry about things that, that I'm not you know, my skill set doesn't speak to. So for example, I don't manage my own retirement funds. It's a 30 or 40 year journey. And I, you know, I just don't have the patience for it. I manage my own discretionary portfolio because I have high conviction bets, if you want to call it on companies that I really have fallen in love with. Uh, and then in the middle, I have a lot of investments in places I don't understand, but I do believe that they're going to be, they're going to own a big part of the future. So for example, you know, solar or uh, battery powered cars, I can't express an opinion on Tesla. So I'll invest with people who are watching that market space. So I think in the outcome, the future is going to look like that. People are going to manage what they know and understand. They're going to outsource what they don't. And then the goals or financial uh, uh, things that in their lives that just take too long to, to do, they're going to give to other people. But if do. you successfully partner with Discovery Bank, then that brings into question your competitor's model, which says – we don't really worry about easy because it's low cost, fractional, et cetera. They're looking at a different end of the market. But if you're getting the Discovery Bank uh, investors or, or uh, target market to come along to easy as well, do you not have to enhance your product set? Yeah, and we have. So 
the product capability continually uh, sophisticates. So, for example, we put in limit orders very recently, which the community have been asking for, which raises the level of sophistication radically. Um, and we'll keep doing that. But stop we, losses? Yeah, stop losses. So you can put stop losses, take profits in now. Uh, you can't. You can only do it on the top hundred SA shares, and then the whole US market. So and that's what just, don't you do that the if you like full service stockbrokers charge? <laughs> you know that's it. We do what we do what they do. We do it easier, faster, cheaper, better. Um, and I guess when we started, we couldn't say that. We focused very much on it being easier and cheaper. But our level of sophistication is growing all the time. And you know, if you look at the pace at which we're innovating. And the pace at which they're innovating, how long before we go past them? Have you read Clay Christensen? I've, I have, yeah. Because that does seem to me to be very much aligned with his theory of disruption. The, the, the Korean steel mills who started in the United States small were completely ignored by the big steel yeah. companies. And, of course, there are no more steel companies in the U.S. That, is, it, is that part of your playbook? 100%. And, you know… While we built easy, and I think this is where the market has had a blind spot on us, we obviously built easy for a younger demographic, which meant they had less money. But it would be foolish to say that they're poor. You know, this is a younger demographic who haven't inherited the wealth, haven't had the acceleration in their own income statement through their sal- wages and salaries. But this is a highly educated, informed customer base who I 100% are going to own the wealth in this country. So where will the wealth be 20 years from now? You know, it has to be with us. Our responsibility is to make sure we keep our customers happy. And there's going to be lots more disruptive businesses that are come and attack us to try and take our customers. And so we're going to have to defend and keep moving forward. But if we stop today and there were no competitive interests coming into the market over the next 20 years, the wealth would be with easy equities. It's extraordinary, actually, when you start unpacking the implications of the Discovery Bank partnership because it, it really does uh, flag where your your disruptive uh, road is going. Mm. There were two other partnerships that were interesting, Bidvest Bank and Telcom. Are they, again, my, my mistake, perhaps I hadn't heard of them, but uh, have you, could you unpack those? For yeah, us? Bidvest is, was the first bank we ever partnered. So it's been around six or five or six years. Um, we've, you know, they've, we've never really come to terms in terms of how that's going to work inside Bidvest. So no one really knows about it, including most of the Bidvest people. They've had a lot of change within Bidvest. So, you know, at some point we'll sit down and find a way to accelerate the growth there. So it's a nice growth rail that we've got, but we're not using well enough. And that's our problem. We must sort that out. Telcom's exciting. You know, Telcom are the fastest growing data service provider in the country. Almost a deal with MTN would have put us, you know, inside MTN as well. That would have been really exciting. So who knows? That, I don't think that's over. Um, but I love the telecom team. They, they share our dreams and aspirations around this democratization. That'll launch first quarter. In fact, that'll launch ahead of discovery. That'll go live. There was a date set. It's, I'm just going to say February. Let's see if the team stick to it. Um, and that gives us, you know, that gives us access to about 10 or 12 million South Africans. Um, and when you consider now Capitech, Discovery Bank, Bidvest, Telcom, you know, you have to go quite far out of uh, to the corners of South Africa to find a point of access that we can't access, uh, and that's why I'm confident that the next phase of growth, deliver down the rails that we've got, deliver more products down the rails that we've got, and then finally, Charles, go and do something somewhere else. Go and see if you can replicate this business somewhere else on the continent, in Asia, Eastern Europe, and out of our Australian business. Crypto, yes. It appears to be very successful, uh, half a billion in deposits or assets mm. that are held by 
the tens of thousands who've, who've invested through easy equities into crypto. Mm. What uh, just just explain how that impacted the financial results? Because yeah, I, I saw there was a revaluation. Yeah, so we had an option to acquire fifty one percent of the company if we met uh, specific distribution goals, and and they were really simple. One was number of assets. So, and we hit that number of assets last year in our financials. Um, and at that time, we had about a hundred thousand customers, and I think there was three or four hundred million in assets. And that's now gone above half a billion in assets. Um, and it got big on us quickly, as these things do. And so. In February, we didn't revalue it because it wasn't as big, and we sort of felt that you know it was questionable whether we were going to execute the option. But by the time the audit came around, the auditors walked through the door and said, "Listen, you know you've got this option, and you've got the right to buy fifty-one essentially for naught. It's not worth naught." So they did a they did a discount uh, value uh, valuation, cash flow valuation on the business. In the last twelve months, it had profitability PBT of about eight million rand. So on a PBT base, it was like a twelve or thirteen multiple, which in the crypto space is super conservative. Um, and so they had to write it up. I mean, we would have liked to avoid the write up because we don't like those things, and we've stood accused of writing up businesses in the past that didn't materialize in terms of the value that we attributed to them. But I think this case is a very conservative write-up. Easy Crypto has over a hundred thousand customers, uh, and we're saying the enterprise value is somewhere near a hundred million. When Easy Equities had ten thousand customers, I raised a hundred million from Sunlum. We raised a hundred million from Sunlum at a valuation of two hundred million. You know, so it's is it worth the 50, 55 million written up? It's worth a lot more than that. So you're not doing a corp capital in us. Remember no, the corp capital story. Okay, that satisfies me. Uh, also have a look at the compound annual growth rate across the board. In fact, the one uh, when we put uh, Easy Equities or Purple Capital into our business portfolio, I did some projections for mm. the end of this year. They all came in roundabout right, excepting for the customers. I had a, a number of uh, probably, I think it was around 600,000, and you've now got 900,000 active customers. How come you've been overshooting on that side? How do you define active customers maybe as a starting point? Yeah, so active customers are anyone who's got an investment account that is invested in the market. So you've you've had to have taken your own money and put it in. Uh, And the number was 700,000, so I'm not sure where you got the 900 from. Um, but it's still above your 600,000 mm-hmm. projection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the acquisition rate, we acquire customers about 60,000 new customers a month. That's registrations. Mm-hmm. Conversion of registrations into real accounts that are investing is about 47%. So we're adding about 30,000 roughly new custom active customers a month. Uh, and that's been going on since COVID. So that's why those numbers are bigger. I think everyone felt that the COVID experience was good. The tide was going to go out. And it hasn't gone out. I mean, we're still acquiring 60,000 customers a month. That's what we were doing 18 months ago. Uh, and I do wake and up. it's word of mouth. It is. It's more than 65% of our customers are referral. Um, and, you know, that's, again, that goes back to our community. So, you know, they have an experience on easy equities. And the overwhelming experience is, oh, my God, this is easier than I thought, and I can do it. And if people have that experience, they turn to their friends and family and say, well, if I can do it, you can do it. And that's what's happening. You know, I think the past financial services, it was difficult to do these things. And if you worked it out for yourself and it took time and effort, you weren't confident to say to your friends and family, well, you should do this too. We've made it that easy that people can. They can confidently go on and do this for if themselves. If you didn't have 10,000 rand, uh, it was 
per trade. Exactly. It was a it was a stupid idea to open a stockbroking account. Yeah. With easy, you can have a hundred rand or fifty yeah. rand. That's we've spoken about the secret. The secret certainly the cost of acquisition, but that that fractionalizing uh, of investments. Now I know you've got an interest in the racing industry, and I, before we go, we need to pick up. Yeah. There was a big announcement this morning on horse racing, which finally seems to be. Uh, coming right, and I know you, well, I presume you've, you've been involved in, in that behind mm. the scenes. But this whole fractionalization of betting, which started in horse racing, where you could take 1% of a pick six mm. of, uh, 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 and, and actually have a chance of winning smaller, but winning. Uh, was that where you got the idea of fractionalization from? No, I, I, and the fact that you just said it, I should have got it from there because I'm involved. But I, we got it in the realization that our customers wanted to own the shares they loved and they couldn't afford them. And, you know, the biggest kind of example, Berkshire Hathaway, who doesn't want to own a piece of Warren Buffett? Um, and we didn't have a solution. And I literally spent six weeks, sleepless kind of nights. We'd stop the business from going ahead saying, how do we solve this? We can't write to CEOs and ask them to do, you know, um, uh, 10 for 1 or dilution, not a dilution, a share split. Um, and I found it in the company legislation in America. The NYSE, from the day it was constituted, forced that as a result of corporate actions, if you gave a fraction of a share, you could not force customers to give you more money and round up or to settle them with cash and then round down. And that's typical of America. You know, if you give me something, you must give me the rights to keep it. So it's been around for over 100 years. What we did is we looked and said, okay, well, if they can do it, we can do it here. Um, and we went on a journey to to own that. Um, we've patented the, the fractionalization of all security, so we can do any security. Um, we've just done bonds, not for release to our customers yet, but it's been released on the platform in beta. And we're going to do lots of other asset classes in the future as well. And fractionalization, I again, I think this is another blind spot that we all have as industry participants you go like what is the point of investing 10 rand but don't we all start as 10 rand investors and is it not better to learn our lessons with 10 rand um, or to engage with a new activity a new investment type with small amounts of capital and that's how i've started i mean recently i bought into these um uh marijuana uh, etfs and companies now what do i know about it zero but I started with 100 bucks, and now I'm getting their financials, and I'm listening to the CEO's report, and I'm following the share price, and I'm engaging, and I'm understanding all the applications of what these guys can do. And it's led me now to psychedelics and investing in psychedelics. And so I'm on this wonderful journey of alternative medicine that would never have been started if I didn't allow myself a 100-round investment in a $100 stock. So fractionalization allows all of us to extend our understanding without the risk of taking big bets. And having skin in the game. And skin in the game is key. You know, there's, no, there's no doubt in my mind. If you own 10 rand of Woolworths and nothing of pick and pay, and the two are parked next to each other, you're going to walk into the Woolworths every single time. Skin in the game is the difference. And it's, you know, again, that's a hindsight kind of comment, but it, it makes sense when you say it out loud. You know, if, if you, the ownership economy is the most disruptive force today. It's the biggest trend in the world. You know, people want to own and the things that they've loved and be in control and at the same time be part of other people's storyline. Tesla, Elon knows this well. You know, why has he got he's got a tribe of investors and why are they prepared to pay a thousand dollars even when he says it's overvalued? It's because they want to wear the Tesla badge. They want to be part of the change in the world that he is making. And that's not about making money from the share price. That's by saying I'm an owner in that. I was part of that change. And that ownership economy, that force, 
is I think it's very underestimated. I think companies in South Africa can leverage this through easy to their ability. Uh, you know, we talked about in venture capital for startup, but what about SAB? What about under the lid of every single beer you drink, there's an ABN Bev share? You know, do you think we'll drink more beer? Do you think it'll be a choice anymore? It won't be, you know what I mean? And so there's huge, there's huge power in driving uh, in enabling ownership through fractionalization, and I think we're just getting started on it. I think we haven't even tried. Uh, the application of it is so much broader than what we've done. Well, thanks for being with us today, and we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News. Biz News.